Hello, Radioland podcast, Phil, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, author-actress Lauren Weedman is here to talk about her memoir, Miss Fortune. That's two words, Miss, new word, fortune. Get it? It's a play on misfortune. You probably knew that. David Eulin is in the studio to weigh in on the splendors of the Donald Trump presidential candidacy. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the editor without portfolio, the editor with all portfolios. Lori Weiner, you look great today. What an introduction. And he is the founding editor of LARB. I call him the professor because that's what he is, Tom Lutz. Okay, let's go to the show. Lauren Weedman is an actress, a comedian, and an author. She was a correspondent, the operative word being was a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I want to get into that. You've seen her on the HBO series Hung and Looking. She's been on, well, go look at her IMDb page. Her new book is a collection of autobiographical essays. It's called Miss Fortune. Two words, get it? And she's here to talk about it. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. That's exactly how I always tell people. I'm like, misfortune. Ha ha, get it? It's hilarious. <laughs> what were t- some of the titles you threw out? I'm going through a title catastrophe right now with the book I'm working on. I'm curious how you arrived at Miss Pause Fortune. Well, first of all, all the titles I had, were they didn't go pow. They didn't go by me. Or Actually, my original title was Not Okay. When I sent it to my publisher, she was like, let's just try some more. Keep going. <laughs> and, yeah. and then I just started getting aggressive. How about like, you know, taking a shit on a plate? How about that for a book title? How about good taken? enough? Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think it is. What happened was I was dating this guy briefly. It was like a Tinder date situation. So I'm really proud of it, honestly. And I was complaining to him, I'm sure, and texting. And he texted back, I'm sorry for all your misfortunes. And then it was turned into by the auto check or the spell check, whatever, you, was turned into misfortune. And he suggested, he was like, hey, maybe that's a good book title. And I was like, that is so cheesy. And then I immediately sent it on to the editor just to see what they would say. They were like, that's a, perfect. Good, we're done. What was your process when you wrote it? Did you circulate drafts to friends? Did you just work with the editor? I, they don't work with the editors so much anymore. I was told that at some party in the boo. I was somewhere, I was mentioning the book thing. I'm sure when I got the book deal, I was sort of like, oops, is that my pair of shoes? Like, oh, anyway, I have a book deal. Like, I'm sure I was trying to find any way to throw it out there. But I had mentioned the book thing, and somebody who'd also just had a book deal was saying, just so you know, you better hire an editor if you want someone to be working with you, because they don't do that anymore. They're going to want you to turn it in at the very end. I was like, oh, that's going to be a problem, because then that means I'd have to know how to write. And they were so right. I mean, I do love my editor because I love what she did with it. But she wanted them all turned in at the end if they were done. So I just grappled through each one on my own, which was probably good. I don't send it to friends because then they tell me what they think. You know what I mean? Then you have to deal with that. So you don't even have one friend who's a reader, like a, your first reader? Mm-mm. No, I used to have it in my husband. But I don't know if you got to the final <laughs> yeah, chapter. We, we, <laughs> we read the book. We read the book. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, the thing about this book, the biggest thing around the writing of this for me, when I wrote the first draft, I felt like I couldn't get to any good stories. And it felt like it was fluffy and it was hyper and manic and it was funny. And I knew I could get by with that. And the editor said to me, her name is Becky. And she was like, you know what? 
for sure, turn it in now. We could sell it. It would do well, I'm sure. But I wonder if we could just go a little bit deeper. And I'm like, there's some reason I can't get to any real stories. Everyone just seems so. And then I found out about my husband's affair. Wow. That that's had been unbelievable. Happening. And what Such happened. Such a great thing to have happen. Really? I know. I know. What a mitzvah. For a writer. <laughs> it's like, I know. Cha-ching. <laughs> it's like a document that you're making the documentary and you find out the murderer did it. Right. Know? And then he's in the bathroom. <laughs> I did it. I killed them all. It was. That's exactly exactly what it was for this in the sense of, yes, it gave me story, but it also, after I found out about how long the affair had been happening and stuff, I went back and every single chapter seemed like an outline of, what am I trying to say? There are all these clues to what was actually happening. Like I was in a story that I couldn't identify. Mm. And then when I went back to each one, to a trippy degree for myself, there were things where I was saying things right there in the chapters about, I think, some, you know, whatever. It's, it's so astonishing, just the way the timing works out and the way our brains, like, are already perceived the things that we yeah, need Yeah, I kind of love that. It's, yeah, it's I crazy. Mean, I, the books seem to have a therapeutic quality. I'm curious what the emotional journey was like, because you said your editor said, go deeper. And of course, the reason we fear to go deeper is because we don't want to unlock ourselves because then we'll lose all control and never be able to leave bed for the rest of our lives. So am I speaking, am I revealing, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. So what I'm asking is how is it emotionally to write the book? What kind of effect did it have on you? Well, first of all, I always want to go as deep as I can. Like I always want to be push, push, push. Like I like the people that do push me. And most people just don't, you know, after a certain age, they're like, well, old lady, you got it under control. It's up to you now to um, do your own shopping and get yourself to bed and brush your hair. That's what I consider the task of my day. <laughs> um, but I want to be pushed. But to me, when she was pushing me, the editor initially, I'm like, there's nothing there. You're mining and nothing's there. So once I found out about the affair and such, when she was pushing for it, my only concern was, and it was my resistance, I'm sure, was that I didn't want it to sound like therapy. But then I know in the books that I read that I enjoy, I do like when they get gross and human and messy about it, even if it sounds a little... I don't know, indulgent in the sense of, what is love? <laughs> Shall I know love again? <laughs> you know, is it my childhood? You know, is it the first relationship I had that perhaps caused this? Yes, there were moments, I had a couple moments of catharsis with it that I w- were embarrassing. And it wasn't just that I thought, oh, no, I'm going to start sobbing. I don't have your issues that you seem to have that are... That Agoraphobia. Are, yeah. <laughs> oh, that are, God, no th- those aren't going anyplace. You know I mean, you can tell those are solid. <laughs> In more um, ways than one. But um, I, for myself, I was more... It was embarrassing, just the emotional... It, I don't know why it is. Maybe you can tell me. Like, when I was writing this one story about my ex-husband and his girlfriend, his current girlfriend, too, our, our old babysitter, the editor was like, can you go back in that story and maybe talk about why you loved your husband at some point? And I was like, let's not do the guy any favors. I think it's enough I'm even writing about him. I think I want to... Mm-hmm. And she goes, just give us a little bit of background just so we can sort of know. And in writing about that... I did have like some major, like I had this, I had like what I've heard writers talk about where I had like a vision or I had like a, a little breakthrough that was emotional, but hopefully it also served the story. I want it to be story. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want it just to be like. Okay, know. I have a question. How much time did you have after you turned in the book and you found that out to do your deeper draft? How much, what was the time period of that? I don't know. It all felt like four days. Um, it always seems like it's so, because I have no time because of this kid that I have. Damn kids. Um, Yeah, I know, soul-sucking child. Um, I mean, career-sucking. Whatever, it doesn't matter. No, um, so I was busy doing that. But Um, in a way, you were kind of forced to. Yeah. 
do therapy really quickly because do therapy <laughs> because you don't come off as bitter. You really do have some perspective on what happened. Yeah. You don't you have that raw thing, that raw, unprocessed no, anger. <laughs> well, you don't seem to have it. And I think that's probably what your editor was saying when she right. asked you to do that. Right. But you were kind of forced to really have perspective on this thing way quickly. Yes. Well, it was about time. I didn't write this two months after I separated or that I got separated. It was like a year, I guess it'd be a year or so after. So it was an appropriate time period. It wasn't going to be published if it wasn't ready. And it's not a memoir either. Like people aren't so dying to know about Laura Wadman. Like, and I'm not known enough that people are just surprising me, but I got a little tabloid thing that happened for a second after I stupidly did an interview with the New York Post. The Dum Dum. Yeah, the Post one. Someone Googled. <laughs> right? It was awful. I do, I do my research so you don't have to. Okay? Yeah, that's, well, the Post is just so, oh, that was the only time where I was like, oh, maybe I'm, that I mattered to be in that tabloidy world was flattering in one sense, where I'm like, wow, I guess I have been. And then it was just awful, awful, awful. Because all that stuff, all the cathartic, it's all about, does it make the story better? Does it make it a better journey? Does it make it, you know, so I would have lied a little bit if it would have made it a better story. But like Sandra Singlo, who do you know? Do you Sandra Singlo? Oh yes. When she first (laughs) broke up with her husband before the Man, Woman, and the Volvo, the first thing she did was she wrote an essay for Harper's Magazine about how marriage is like an antiquated concept and we really don't need it anymore. And she was not quite (laughs) far enough away from her experience (laughs) too. And everyone kind of saw it, you know. And she sees it. I mean, that was me too. I, I was reading just as an actor. I was doing the audio for an audiobook, and it was for open marriage. Oh, I didn't write the book, but I had to keep taking breaks just to scream out like, yes, amen. Yes. All right. (laughs) It was like, would you rather know another human being or be lied to? And I'm like, oh, yes, preach it. (laughs) And I was convinced on all the dates I went on, I was constantly telling people that I'm like, my big thing is I want to watch you have sex with somebody else because I think that'd be amazing. Let's just get it done right at the get go. (laughs) And I was convincing people on there. And every guy was like, my God, have I scored? I'm with a woman. So I'm like, I don't believe in commitment. I don't believe in marriage. I don't believe that ceremony of lies, I like to call it. None of it. Yes, because your heart is so blasted. So this one, yeah, there's a little more time. And I do write so much about myself. And I also wanted to get better. Here's the one thing is I knew I didn't want to stay where I was. I don't want to be a year from now just worse off. I couldn't imagine life getting worse. So I wanted to make sure it was going to get better. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, KPFK 90.7 FM. Let's go back to our interview with Lauren Weedman. There's a real, just a tiny moment in the book where someone says, you'll remember maybe what it was, somebody says something heavy to you and you can't come up with a quip. So you get really uncomfortable, like you start sweating. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think we all have a little bit of this, maybe less so you, but. I never come up with a quip. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. No, no, I I sweat a lot anyway. (laughs) That's not what I mean. I mean, (laughs) when you're uncomfortable, like a quip is always a fast way to fix the situation. You definitely do that. It's the value. I do that. Yeah. I thought that was a great That's moment. how I make, it's my career. Well, yes. Like when no. people complain to me like, okay, Lauren, can we not get a barb in response to that? Like, can you maybe just give us a real, or like, well, yeah, but then the empire crumbles. Is that what you want? <laughs> like my child needs to eat. And I was worried too about going, because I remember when I read Eat, Pray, Love, the 
well, the mm-hmm. first time as if I've read it nine times, but not that there'd be anything wrong with reading it nine times. But the first time I read it, I was so irritated by it because it was so careful. Like the beginning, she didn't want to go into details about her marriage. She's like, I'll just say we're two adults that went our separate ways. And and I was like, oh my God, I want to know like, like what happened? You know, was he like, eat your grapefruit? <laughs> you know, was he, like when you push down the stairs, I'm like, give me details. And I thought it was so precious. And I thought, oh, it's just like some setup for a movie deal. You know, she's just waiting for Julia Roberts to like, oh Lord, I'm in Italy. Oh. And, but then when I was writing this time and I do have a child and I am older and I am not looking the book is not a means for something else it is what it is they're just stories because my mother's always like well Lauren when I told her I got the book thing she was like well I hope this leads to something you know and I'm like I'm like well we're here mom this is it like this is the moment and it was so hard for her to accept that but that's a tough one, yeah. That's and your reason. kid, of course, will yeah. will read this someday. Yes, yes, which I absolutely, which people, on the, on the book tour too, I was constantly getting people saying how brave I was. And when they would say that, I would sort of feel like I had to look behind me like, what do you see? Like, what's happening? What do you mean? <laughs> like, brave? Yeah. Like, is this a, it's like being told, ooh, that outfit's so brave. I'm like, oh, Jesus, I'll go change. I get it. But I didn't think it was brave. I mean, and then a little bit of like, would you ask that to a male author? Would you say, <laughs> yeah, how yeah, brave right, of right. you to talk about your affair? How brave of you to, if anything, you're just like, more details. Ah, he's my <laughs> yeah. hero. He'll talk about anything. Ah, he's amazing. It's like uh, somebody told Lita Dunham that she was brave for being naked all the time, and she's like, I really like taking my clothes off. I mean, it's not... Yeah, it's not know, brave. I know, it's brave just to keep what on. I like to do. Yeah, exactly. Know? That's how I am with the, you know, the writing. But no, but in, I always was aware that my child was going to read it, which mm-hmm. is why I wanted to get wiser with it. Like, I wanted some insights. Like, I didn't want to keep it at the level that I first turned it in. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I must get to a better place for everybody, but also for the story and for my kid, but mostly... I still want it to be a good, but I know I'm obsessed with like, it's not just about me. I want it to be good stories. So I'm so self-absorbed and trying to act like it's not all about me. So John Stewart was in here last week and he, he only had nice liar. things to say about exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> only nice things. Yeah. And what I'm getting in the implications of your experience on The Daily Show was perhaps you saw that relationship differently than... I loved him too, but I'm sure it was mutual love. Uh, it was just so deep and so tortured our love that we couldn't speak it, you know, as it wasn't able to be. It was so frustrated, that love. And he's um, the father of, of your baby. Most of my babies. Yeah, uh, yeah most yeah. of my babies. My psychotic babies, my psychosis <laughs> babies. John, God, I still think about him. He's still such a archetypical, like today, I was trying to make a list of people, of villains, like people I think, just to help for writing. I'm not going to use them. And I was thinking, oh, there's my neighbor. It was like a real villain for a while because she was always just monitoring me and sort of, is that your second date this week? It just seems like a lot for a single mom. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, get in your house. And she was my, the enemies that teach us kind of thing. And then I was like, oh, John Stewart. Like, I was obsessed with how I could do no right with him. Like, from mm. the get-go, people are like, there's something about you and John that is not working. Mm. And every time you walk in the room and you don't shut up <laughs> and you keep talking <laughs> and you make a joke, it makes him nuts. Like, you have to learn that he's in charts. He's not your peer. Mm. And even that, after that was told to me at one point, they're like, he's not your peer. Stop treating him like your peer. Mm. I turned to John. I saw him in the hallway and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you're not my peer. <laughs> like, meaning like, don't do things like, sometimes I'm sad, John, or like, you know, my marriage is falling apart. Like, what does that mean? And he was like, you know what, um, Lauren, enjoy yourself. Have a good day. I will see what, like, he just was never, yeah. anything uh, I'd say to him made him just cringe and crazy and I think my ego was too big. I'm like, I want my own show. Like, I was trying to get... I also had this idea that John and I could be friends. I'm like, well, of course we'll be friends. Yeah. Because like, we're so we're so alike. <laughs> no, actually no ways. But 
And I, yeah, I just, I just drove him crazy. Well, that's a reasonable way well. to go into a work situation is yeah, assuming absolutely. that you're peers with the people yeah. you're working with. Yeah, that's but not, it's not completely I, unheard of. Yeah, but not if you're a woman working in a comedy environment. Yeah. I think that the men are all, the issues around women are just complicated. They're just so nerdy. Everyone's so nerdy and so hilarious and brilliant and asperger and that kind of stuff. Has that shifted? Because that was, what year was that? That, that was, was like 2000, 2001. Yeah, 2001. So it seems like right now the comedy environment for women is a lot better than oh, it yeah. was then, right? So are, do you feel that as you go around town or New I'm York not in or? it as much. Like I'm a visitor. I go in and out. I was just on, did a film. It was all mostly men and myself. And I thought at the end of the experience of shooting the film, I thought, nope, it's exactly the same. But I think it's mm. me. Like, I just don't do well in the, if it's just banter, banter, quip, 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 I get an anxiety attack within like 20 minutes. Because if we don't talk about something that's going on, and it's, I know it's a little self-absorbed because usually what I want to talk about is what's going on with me. And if we're not allowed to get any depth going on, again, that will help my life. I don't like it. And those guys can exist on this like playing the game, playing the game thing. And so the women, and there's a lot of women that do well in that environment. I just don't so much. It's just not really. But yes, it's totally shifted. And I'm not going to work on a show anymore where there's a king. And when I'm in those environments, I'm constantly like, oh, she put her feet towards the king again. That's not allowed. You know, like mm-hmm. I got in trouble and I just was, I had a flash of like I was trying to be a Buddhist for a week for putting my feet towards the Buddha. And as soon as I got in trouble, I was like, I'm out. You guys are too controlling. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't want any rules. No rules. So yeah, well, but, it's still a about- very important man in our culture. He has an animal rescue farm, right? Yeah. I would like to do, but someone doesn't want to do it. Right. But um, hates animals. Well. Yeah. <laughs> but what about the, the general sexism in the industry? Because did you see Bonnie McFarland made a little documentary? It wasn't... No, but I watched you know, it. But it, it was about sexism in, in the industry. So a lot of comics talking, just right. talking. It's really interesting. And one of the things is that the male comics will talk about their penises constantly, but they hate it when women talk about their vaginas, apparently. That's disgusting. You Are should you not start be talking about your vagina. Is this a setup? Because I don't want to hear about it. Well, you don't? It's really <laughs> interesting. Oh, Lori really, tries, really, really tries to do this with every guest. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. just be patient for and, a moment. And my she... experience is that it works better with men than it does with women. So I don't know. Does, <laughs> talking does... with vaginas with men, they like it better. <laughs> well, I was once in a poker game with Sarah Silverman, like a long time ago, like 2000 and one, uh-huh. and I swear to God, she talked about her vagina the whole night, and I didn't know that was her thing. So I was like, what is this woman? She just keeps talking about her vagina. Yeah, Constantly. it's my go-to in those groups. I get in those groups, I will find myself, I'll get super crude, and I can. It's enjoyable for me. It's not unenjoyable. But I can't, I don't know if sexism, I just think it's hard that men and women are, it's difficult to, I can't articulate it very well. It's like, yes, there is sexism, for sure. But I also think it's just rooted in how guys who are funny are funny for a certain reason. Like they're using comedy to survive for a certain reason. And that way, that whatever it is, doesn't work well with women. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just hard for them. Like whether it be they're funny because they never felt like women love them. And so I always feel like when I talk about my, myself, they think I want them to save me. Or something, because I'd see guys like I don't know what to tell you, Lauren, um, but I can't solve that. And uh, Jesus, you're a handful. And I'm like, you don't have to solve it. I was just saying it's been odd. To, you know, every time I touch John Stewart's arm, that he like looks down where I touched him, and and I'm like, is that because he doesn't like to be touched? They're like, I don't know. You look great today. Everybody likes you. You're very funny. You're very pretty. Very pretty. Like just trying to like keep her up, keep her up. Oh God, don't don't be sad, Mama. Don't be sad. Like it just seems. I think it's so much deeper uh-huh. than just the sexism of like, oh, women are dumb or women right. aren't funny. Yeah. I think it's really about what they want from women. So are you saying that men's comedy is more based on defensiveness than women's comedy is? Maybe. I don't know. I don't really think about their comedy. 
Like, I don't analyze them. Again, I'm uh-huh. so freaking self-absorbed. I'm just thinking about why is it <laughs> that I haven't been able to survive in that world? I used to say when I just got, when I got fired from The Daily Show, I think I got fired. I'm freelance. I think I'm still freelance. Sure you are. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that I used to say is because my comedy comes from my vulnerability, from my being a mess or me trying to figure out why I'm a mess. And that does not go over well in a political comedy environment. You know, nobody wants to hear about, even me just walking in the room if I say something about how, whatever, you know, any joke about myself. It's just not, it just doesn't work. There's not a commodity to it. That's for sure, too. Hmm. That's a sinking ship. You don't want to be around somebody whose comedy is not going to make you money. <laughs> so yeah. I save it for the theater. But the reason that I like your title so much is because you are, in fact, misfortune. I mean, you are. No, nothing goes right no, for no, me. No, no, that's not what I'm thinking. The opposite. That, that you, you know, I mean, there's. That things are great? Well, I mean, look, you know, you're kind of brilliant. You got and a book. You got it a lead great, somewhere. You got a yeah. good, I mean, you, got, you found You your know what? My next book will be and... called just, To What End? Everything, I think my next project is just To What End? To What End? It's like you do it and nothing leads to something. I'm so over the idea that this happens and then this is a game changer. This is a game changer. It's, a change. <laughs> it's not about that. It's just like life happens like this and then I find a way to deal with it artistically. And then life happens mm-hmm. again. I find a way to deal with it artistically. It just keeps going on and on. And I never feel like I have broken through to some level. People are like, well, look at you. Right. You were on HBO show. I'm like, I was on for a season. All the money's gone. Like, I'm still in the same. I always live in the same. So if anything, I do need to borrow money. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The book is Misfortune. It's funny. It's humane. You should read it. Lauren Weedman, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. David Yulin is in the studio today to talk about Donald Trump as a fictional character, something I wish that Donald Trump were. Alas, he is not. He's all too real. But as I've contemplated Trump over the past year since he descended the gilded staircase in that horrific building of his on Fifth Avenue, I've wished that he was a figment of my imagination or something from a play or something from a novel. He is all too real. David, how does he strike you, Trump, in the continuum of... American fiction. Where does he land? He is, what's his name? Berzelos Windrip, right? The main character from oh, Buzz, uh, Windrip. Buzz Windrip from It Can't Happen Here on some level. By Sinclair I mean, Lewis. By Sinclair Lewis, although that character was based on Huey Long. Trump is an interesting character in a number of ways. I mean, I was living in New York in the 1980s when sort of his first flush of emergence. And the most amazing thing about this incredibly bizarre campaign is like, wow, I can't believe we haven't seen through this as a culture. We saw through this 30 years ago in New York. It's telling to me that in the New York primary, the only county he didn't win was Manhattan. (laughs) But I think that he's our id. He's the American id. He's the most extreme contemporary expression of the American id that I can think of. The great challenge for me with Trump is that watching him, he makes me sort of think, hmm, W, there was a statesman, which makes me worry what I'm going to be thinking in 12 years. But Trump seems to come out of this deep American tradition because I think so much goes back to Huckleberry Finn. And when Trump came along as a politician, I thought, well, this is the Duke and the Dauphin in one guy. Essentially, this is a show business guy pulling a con over a town, and the town is America. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there was a recently a piece that I was reading. I mean, that piece doesn't exactly make this claim, but a Washington Post piece where the headline said, essentially, is he the Manchurian candidate or is he the 1919 Chicago White Sox? I don't think he's the 1919 Chicago White Sox. I don't think he's he's trying to throw the election. I don't think he's a plant. I don't buy the idea 
that I guess Salman Rushdie, among others, has floated, that he was a kind of a plant to sort of throw the election to the Clintons. But I think what you're seeing with him, actually, my current concern is that there'll be a delegate revolt at the convention and they'll actually come up with a viable candidate. Because right now, I mean, granted, it's months before the election, but right now I think we're looking at a an ass weapon like we haven't seen in quite some time, which would not be a terrible thing. Yeah, I think, you know, he is the American id, and he's therefore got 35% of the electorate on yeah. his side. He never goes over those kind of numbers if they count the libertarian candidate and the, right, and the green candidate. Right. And realistically, when there were 17 candidates on the Republican side, that was about his ceiling also. I think he only really started across 50% when he was the last man standing. Even if you look at the numbers in California, candidates who had suspended their campaign were pulling in 11 yeah, and 8% exactly. of the vote, which was clearly the anti-Trump protest vote. At the moment, I'm not overly concerned about him losing the election. I'm astonished at watching the train wreck of, you know, the reports of how little money he's got and how poor his fundraising efforts are and how he has no statewide organizations in most of the battleground states as if he thinks he can win the election by sheer magical thinking. But I think Trump has also been very much, I mean, that way he's sort of like, you know, the Wizard of Oz or Willy Wonka in that way, like a malevolent Willy Wonka in the sense that it's that magical thinking is all he's got. What is it that makes such a significant slice of the American population so susceptible to a con? You'd have to ask P.T. Barnum about that. But I think that... There's one born every minute. There's one born every minute. But, you know, there was an interesting point made... Dave Eggers wrote a piece recently in The Guardian where he compared him to Andrew Dice Clay. Mm-hmm. And he said, Clay, the appeal of Clay was that he would get up on stage and he would just say whatever. He'd say the, the most unacceptable thing imaginable. And there is something funny. I mean, you know, regardless of how acceptable it is in terms of our own discomfort on the one hand, or also our own sort of, depending on where we sit, our discomfort on the one hand, or the idea that someone's actually saying what's real on the other hand, of having someone get in front of a microphone and just say the most horrendous stuff imaginable. It's that which should not be heard stuff. And I think that that's part of, you know, initially at least, that was part of Of his course. Appeal. And a part of it is that the Republicans have been running on an anti-government platform for so long. And yeah. so eventually you're going to want somebody as your candidate who is not in the government, never was in the government, has no business being in the government, and he represents no government. Exactly. And And I think we've seen this. I mean, that was Palin's appeal. That's the appeal of the Tea Party. And I think that the other thing about the Republicans is for all of their talk or their whining about how did this happen? I mean, the Republicans have enabled this for decades, right? The Republicans have been been building, have been absolutely working towards this, have been sort of kowtowing to these forces and then kind of pretending that they could have it both ways. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, there's anything positive about the Trump uprising, let's say, it's that the Republicans are getting hoisted on their own petard. They brought this on. When Paul Ryan gets up there and sort of questions how this could have happened, I'm like, dude, do you have a mirror? Go look in the mirror. Is what we're really seeing the death throes of Reaganism? And by Reaganism, I mean politically and socially? Well, the Reagan coalition, you mean? I mean the Reagan coalition, and I mean the idea of Reagan, the idea of an actor who didn't serve in World War II, who presented himself as a, a military avatar, who created an image that had no bearing on the reality of his actual life. And is Trump the burlesque of that and the end of it, essentially? I, I don't know if it's the end of it because we live in that culture now. So I don't know that Trump is the end of it. I don't even know if it's Reagan. I mean, if you think about Reagan in two ways, the Reagan coalition goes back to Nixon and the Southern strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, which was at best thinly veiled racism. And the media star, although he was a legitimate war hero, begins with Kennedy or maybe even with FDR, who, you know, very famously 
got out of the wheelchair and walked to give his acceptance speech at the 1932 Democratic Convention. So that sense of politics and media, you know, Eisenhower was the first presidential candidate to hire an advertising agency to help run his campaign. So I think all of these things have been in play for a while. But I also think that we now live in this culture of... I don't want to call it a reality TV culture, but we live in a culture where the fantasy has become unhinged from the reality in a way. I mean, Reagan at least was playing a part that was recognizable. He knew how to get up there and look presidential. Trump acting presidential would be the worst thing for Trump in some way. He'd alienate his 35%. This is the problem with talking about Trump. It's not the end of anything, unfortunately. It's not the end of anything. It's not the end of anything. It's just a moment in a sordid history of pandering and bullshit. And uh, that's not going to change once Trump destroys the Republican Party. Right. That will end up somewhere else. And I also feel that in the same way, if we go, if we bring it back to sort of long, for instance, or we bring Mm -hmm. it back to American nativism, because Trump is also really representing a strand of American nativism, which is as old as the Republic. And anti-intellectualism. And anti-intellectualism and and racism and xenophobia and all Mm -hmm. of these things, right? Those things have been kind of, I don't want to say they've been put in the box, but they've been people look over their shoulder before they say them. Now we don't have to, right? So that's not going to go away at all. Trump may well, and I think is likely to be humiliated in this election. And I think it's actually going to be bad for business for him in some way. But the Pandora's box, he didn't open the box. In the most contemporary incarnation, it was McCain who opened the box by bringing Palin in as a running mate. But the box was sort of, the lid was still kind of half on, and Trump has kicked the lid off entirely. What, what scares me about Trump yeah. is is Trump clearly is is not the smartest guy in the room, contrary to what he believes, and is, is actually kind of obtuse. And if he were less obtuse, he'd be way more dangerous. And what's worrisome to me is the next person who comes along who's like Trump will not be obtuse and will know how to behave to get elected. And what's this election has shown me, Trump won't be elected, but a Trump kind of person can be elected. Oh, absolutely. And that's terrible. It can happen here. It It can can happen here. here. It can happen here. Yeah, I think that Gingrich is the guy that took the lid off the box. Yeah, that's right? true. Gingrich yeah. absolutely was was a key lid off the box yeah. person in this and, process. And so it's interesting that he's getting floated now as a as a VP for Trump. Right, which I, should actually, you know, in a way, be the perfect culmination of Gingrich's empty pseudo intellectual career. He's, he's the likeliest <laughs> choice. All right, David Eulen. It's a it's a fitting. It's very Dante esque. Uh, you've got a new book. As called, long as they lose, Tom. As long as they lose. <laughs> you've got a new book called Ear to the Ground. It's about Earthquakes. It's a novel written by David Ulan and Paul Colesby. Paul Colesby, who exists? He exists. We hear. He exists. Thanks for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to our czar of scheduling, Ashley Bean. Thanks to our intern, Maria Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks to associate producer, Jim Lane. Thanks to Lauren Weedman. Thanks to David Eulen. And thanks to Emerson College for letting us use their beautiful studios. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.